listening to the Northern Football Podcast with Peter Galindo and Thomas Neff. Yes, it's episode 64 of the Northern Football Podcast. I'm Peter Galindo, he is Thomas Neff, and back for a fourth time, most definitely cap-tying him to the Northern Football Podcast at this point, it's Alex Gange-Ruzik. How are you guys? Happy to be back. Happy to be back. I'll hop in and say, hey... Uh, well, we'll get used to that. It's not we're not in person today. It's weird. We're not looking at each other uh, over the, the the mic. But yeah, I'm happy to 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 join the the, the lads for for today's show. Always a pleasure to to chat uh, soccer with uh, with the boys. I'll keep it to that for for now. But uh, pleasure as always. Yeah, happy to be back as always. Uh, tons of news going on. Uh, Vancouver back in the mix for 2026. They also just defined the location for their CPL team, the U20s, as we know. They play their first game uh, of the friendlies uh, and the run-up in mailbag as usual. So I uh, should be uh, excited and happy to have uh, Alex back. Uh, perhaps uh, there's an official uh, announcement in the coming uh, days. Potential bomb. Love it. Um, just before we dive into <laughs> everything else, a reminder to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast so you don't miss any episodes. If you prefer Apple or Spotify, then leave us a rating. And if you're an Apple user, then drop a review as well. Also, be sure to follow us all on Twitter, at Northern Football, at GalindoPW, at Thomas Neff, and at Alex Gange Ruzik. And with that said, let's begin with the big news from last Thursday that Vancouver has re-entered the bidding process to become a host city for the 2026 World Cup. Uh, guys, we saw this coming. Uh, the premier of uh, BC, John Horgan, he gave an interview saying that they were in talks. Um, Nick Bontas even told told us um, that he expected sometime in May in an interview. Uh, finally, as Vancouver writes, how do you guys feel uh, that your hometown has uh, re-entered the race? Oh man, I think it's uh, it's it's welcome news. I'd say for sure. I think it's long overdue. Uh, personally, I thought it was done and dusted years ago when it, it was kind of announced that they'd gone. Out when they came back in with the sort of you know the dance flirting sort of oh we want to be back in it was kind of like mm -hmm. it wasn't going to happen it never happens but then it kind of just became more and more real and I think ultimately for for me the way I see it for Vancouver they're incredibly lucky with how everything uh, turned out but the fact that they've they've had the venue inspected before they've hosted a, a major tournament final as in they've hosted a world cup final in the city before they've hosted the olympics the infrastructure is there they've everything for the for, in terms of the bid was already set up it's just it took the negotiations it took the talking as was pointed out to me as well there's obviously you always easy to forget that victor montagliani obviously very you know main main the head honcho Concacaf, very big voice and you know in fifa being from burnaby i'm sure didn't hurt vancouver at all either so i think it was just a perfect storm of how everything went on and because i'm excited i think vancouver's always been a world-class event city they can handle events like this they showed it at the the women's world cup they showed it at the olympics so the fact that they get a host marquee games at this men's world cup is, is phenomenal and i think uh, vancouver will certainly be ready and will step up for for such an event I hate to be that guy, AGR. You always make me be that guy every time you come on the show, but that's okay. I will be the devil's advocate here. As a soccer fan, I am excited because that also gives me even more excuses to go back to my hometown and pay my family a visit and friends a visit and whatnot. But as a Vancouverite, I do have some questions regarding 
Why did they jump back in when they did? How are the payments going to be made? Did FIFA give them any sort of deal to come back into the mix? What is going to be used to sweeten the pot? Because we saw a report that Toronto is going to have to spend somewhere around, what is it, $300 million? And then the city is going to have to put forth about $90 million, but they're going to ask the provincial and possibly the federal government for some help in that regard. Vancouver and BC's cost is apparently going to be somewhere between 240 to 260 million. So if we go based off the Toronto model, which is a third or 30% of the total cost, Vancouver and BC's contribution is going to be somewhere between 72 to 78 million. They did also commit 5 million to hosting games recently after FIFA visited the city for a recent inspection. There was also a a little bit of a teaser, I think, from Manuel Veth of Transfer Market, who said that FIFA has big plans for Vancouver, whether that means more games, maybe another marquee game, although I do believe that a 60,000 capacity stadium or more is needed for a quarterfinal and semifinal. But a reminder, BC withdrew when FIFA asked for significant tax breaks for a decade, the ability to import and export unlimited foreign currency in and out of the province, and also wanted taxpayers to foot the whole security bill and be liable for any security incident. Uh, I also don't find it surprising, guys, that rumblings of this came, what, a year after the BC NDP won a majority government? When it withdrew, it was a minority government at that time. So... These are all little caveats that I like to throw in there because could it help tourism? Sure it could. Uh, things like Expo 86 and the Olympics clearly helped that, but it came at a pretty significant cost. So you just hope that the BC NDP didn't roll over for the sake of hosting three to five games, especially if it's going to cost the province and the city a lot financially. So a couple of things here. Obviously, the natural grass is is one there's always been sort of this um, myth of the relationship uh, between um, BC and Canada soccer. If you guys look at the map of the potential host cities around North America, including US and Mexico, you have to wonder if having Seattle there uh, makes um, the committee pick one or the other, uh, whether it's both cities, maybe that helps. Uh, Steven Sandor, um, you know, he said that having Edmonton uh, helps the Vancouver bid. Um, and even Bonta said it, uh, I believe it was two months ago that Peter just brought it up. I mean, with the election of a new um, provincial government, these commitments have to be, you know, set in stone. Now, with that being said, you have to wonder if these uh, three cities, obviously with, with Montreal pulling out, if this is going to be it. If, if Canada will indeed be uh, giving three cities and not declining to two. Yeah, we did get a question about this from Ken MNT Armada, whether or not all the host cities are going to get games, or will FIFA favor some over the others? The fact that Vancouver might get a little bit of a sweeter deal maybe puts Edmonton at risk. I know that Sandor mentioned that um, the costs that it would take to renovate Commonwealth Stadium to FIFA standard, that is, could cost, I don't know the exact numbers, but it's going to be a lot of money. And the Alberta government is already looking a little tentative about this. So you wonder if maybe 
they just say, you know what, thanks, but no thanks. We're going to step out here before FIFA actually makes a decision. But Vancouver coming in does help out the Edmonton bit a little bit, just in terms of travel, because then Canada can play all three group games in each Canadian city, even though travel might not be the best. But they have that ability to play all their games at home in all three different cities. But I do worry about the legitimacy of Edmonton's bid now, especially with uh, Manuel's little nugget there about Vancouver. I mean, out of that, I'm, it's a very interesting point about Canada. I do wonder, though, how logistically things are going to work with the three co-hosts, how they're going to draw teams and, and all that mm. before I, I'd bring that up, just because it's going to be hard. You put one, are you going to put U.S. in Group A, Canada in Group B, Mexico in Group C? How is that going to all work? But what I'll add, yeah, I just think Edmonton's bid, because of this, if anything, for Vancouver, I'd say the opposite. I think it might be cooked for for lack of a better way just because you hear you know you read some of what steven sander put in his piece in terms of what the government was asking in terms of that and then you just look at the three cities whereas toronto has hosted world-class events before for them they're upgrade uh they've got the world cast uh stadium they just need to upgrade the size because yeah. they're, they're at thirty-five thousand. they need to be up to forty-five thousand, and then some other small things fair enough vancouver pretty much their main upgrade i think would be just the the grass yeah. i think otherwise their hotels and and the transit and all that is up to to standard so i think that's kind of their main cost whereas edmonton there's a lot of work to be done in terms of their transportation uh their the, you know their accommodation the stadium itself not just grass needs to be installed but i think there's certain aspects of the the stands it's it's an older stadium it hasn't been renovated in in a while i just think all those costs that are incurred for them especially with vancouver and and toronto is included let's be real it's going to be toronto and vancouver is the main kind of marquee venues for canada edmonton could kind of get left in the dust and it could be a 4-4-2 situation where you get four vancouver games for toronto and you get two in edmonton is it going to be worth it to 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 shell out all this money to renovate commonwealth because what you also have to look at is what are you going to do after with commonwealth and with it being just a main venue for the CFL, whereas Vancouver, at least say, if you're going to use BC place, there's rugby sevens. There is obviously CFL, there's other stuff, but there's more events going on there. So they can justify those sorts of upgrades. BMO, they're kind of been viewed as the national stadium right now. If they make a, a, a permanent, you know, capacity upgrade, they could be even more, uh, become the, the Canada's national stadium. There's more incentive for them to make those upgrades, whereas Edmonton, just for two games and then beyond that, the lasting impact, I don't think it, it will be as beneficial for them for what they'll put in versus Vancouver, Toronto. On the subject of timing, FIFA visited these sites in November, was it? Right around that time, maybe a month or two at most went by, the Vancouver reports trickled out because the CSA and FIFA approached Vancouver and the BC government about potentially hosting games. So I feel like that's not a coincidence that FIFA visits Edmonton. They have all these requirements. Alberta kind of looks over the potential costs of it. And then the CSA and FIFA then go to Vancouver saying, hey, do you think you might want to do this if, you know, we maybe give you X, Y, and Z? It just shows you how much Montreal fumbled the bag. Sorry, Thomas. So it just shows you how much Montreal fumbled it in terms of if they were already in this sense uh, and, and Edmonton wanted to drop out, Toronto-Montreal would have been very attractive oh, yeah. for FIFA. Two cities side by side could have been a host hub maybe for a group or, or something like that. But because Montreal obviously pulled out, you can't have Toronto on its own. It's a very good point that it could just, you know, be be something from FIFA. But sorry, Thomas, just wanted to add in. 
No, no worries at all. And, but th that's the thing about this thing, right? I mean, with Montreal not going there, um, you have that extra concern. Um, you mentioned the cost that Toronto would bring. I mean, MLS is loaded with money. Mm -hmm. But when I was back in Edmonton, I actually found out uh, that the Elks would be required to play an entire season um, either at Telus Field, that's the baseball stadium, or at Clark while they renovate um, Commonwealth Stadium, making it even more difficult. Uh, gentlemen, let's move on uh, to the U-20s who played uh, the first of two friendlies in San Jose, Costa Rica on Friday afternoon. Canada defeated Costa Rica 3-0 thanks to goals from Cam Habibula, Jesse Costa, and Matthew Catavolo Agolasso in every sense of the word. Uh, we also saw Tyler Crawford from the Columbus Crew, Jefferson Alphonse, a defender from the CF Montreal Academy, get late call-ups uh, starting the game. There was a lot of people on Twitter asking, uh, there was a potential stream, Canada Soccer, Costa Rica, would there be something? Uh, there wasn't, but there was a couple of videos on social media. Before we dive into the game, uh, all of this info uh, we shared has been from third parties. Canada Soccer only tweeted a full-time result three hours after the match and nothing else all day. Uh, first question is from Vince Alvarado at Vince by Demand. Are you guys frustrated like many of us on how the CSA is handling the U20 camp? Nothing except the final score for the first friendly and for lineup info. We had to get it from a third party and piece together photos to get an idea of who played. Very disappointing. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm torn on that in the sense that, of course, more coverage of this, the better. I think it, it's good for for the program to be, you know, bring spotlight on the the youth teams and some of the players. And, you know, I think it's going to be huge as a lot of these players in the next, at least more in the 20s, 26 cycle, we're going to start hearing a lot more about them as they they increase their, their journeys through the professional ranks and obviously onto the Canadian men's national team radar. So I think it's all, all you know, it's very disappointing, but also I think, it's just the nature also of this, these sort of friendlies in, in neutral or I guess in other territories with Costa Rica. And I feel like a lot of these frustrations expressed also could go down to, to the infrastructure in, in Costa Rica. Like, for example, lack of stream, that'd usually be down to the Costa Rican Federation who's hosting the game um, and all that. So I think it's a mix of, yes, I think Canada certainly could have done better uh, in terms of, okay, let's get a lineup out at least. Let's maybe get some sort of highlight clips, even if it's, uh, you know, you, you get one of the, admin team just to take your iphone and film part of the game and get some sort of goal clips and and stuff like that but i just do wonder given the the nature of it being a friendly a u20 friendly in another country where the infrastructure might not be the same uh who knows what the budget is looking like for these these games maybe they had to splurge a little extra money on travel versus you know being able to put up streams just because you're bringing in players from portugal uh, germany you look at some of the, the, the list that didn't they have a player from brazil yeah. as, as well who they brought yeah. in so I, I do wonder if little things like that just made it impossible on top of what the costa rican federation was offering them but maybe Peter will have more on that. Well, it's, it's sort of an extension to what you said in that based on the lack of activity from Canada soccer, it seems like it was very much a skeleton staff when it came to PR, just the overall traveling contingent down to Costa Rica, because I'm sure it did cost them a fair amount of money and travel expenses to get everybody down there. That being said, the players deserve so much better than that than getting one single mm. tweet after the game, three hours after it ended, 
I might add, when you very easily could have tweeted goal updates, a starting 11, just some sort of, of update. Because at least the Costa Rican Federation did put out a full match report. They did tweet a couple of times from the FedeFoot account. Um, and that's where most of the information came from. I think the minimum you can expect is just more than a full-time result with the goal scorers three hours after the match ends. I think they deserve a lot better than that. And when you see how excited some of those players were to represent the team, I think you just could have done a little bit more. Maybe they learned their lesson and this next game coming up on, what is it, Thursday, I believe, they do a little bit more. But I was a little bit disappointed at, at, at how little there was in terms of coverage because I did expect at least a starting 11 tweet, maybe a halftime tweet, and then a full-time tweet right as the game ended. But that's been going on for years. I mean, how many times have we had to watch games on a crappy stream from Granada? I mean, come on. This is just this is, this is normal. But but nonetheless, I mean, CSA has a, has a budget issue. It was actually Nick Bontis who said that uh, when he went to uh, Qatar for the FIFA Congress, he was asking other federations, hey, by the way, how many people do you have employed? Just to yeah. kind of scale it to see how they would compare it to other uh, federations, which I thought it was it was very interesting. The fact is that it's tough. It's tough because how many of us were really excited, and we still are, that these players were representing Canada first and foremost, like when they could have stayed at home. Like so many of these players are European. Mm -hmm. um, they could have perfectly stayed at home. And now, like, nobody, they don't get any exposure, not any real exposure, if they decide to keep the same team. But that's a question that we'll have shortly. Peter, you tweeted uh, what the 11 could have looked like. Um, it's hard to tell for sure without watching it. Um, but what were your takeaways on that lineup? There were a few. Um, I mentioned on the preview last week that I would be curious to see if the team mimics the senior side's tactics. And based on the personnel that started and where they could have slotted it and whatnot, it sure looked like they went with very similar personnel and deployments that the senior team uses in terms of three at the back in possession, two more attack-minded fullbacks or wingbacks, if you want to use that term, three midfielders, one of whom had a free role in Cam Habibula, and then you had two out-and-out -out forwards in Ronan Kratt and Lowell Wright. That could have changed in-game. We obviously did not see when and and who came in in terms of substitutions other than Jesse Costa and, and, and Matthew Catavolo, who got the last two goals. But that's what I did see in terms of maybe some tactical trends to look forward to when the CONCACAF under-20s come around. Selection-wise, interesting to me that it was Alphonse, Smith, and Cloutier, all French speakers, um, playing in the center of that defense. I believe Cluche and Alphonse can also play as fullbacks if needed, so it's possible that when they potentially set up in a 4-4-2 off the ball like the senior team does, one of those guys went out to fullback uh, to, to cover that side. But I would like to see Jamie Knight and LaBelle start the second game. I'm not sure if he came off the bench for the second half on Friday or not, but I feel like him next to Justin Smith could be a really nice balance because they're both equally athletic, pretty technically gifted and in terms of Knight LaBelle based on the people I've spoken to cover Bristol City's youth teams he is far more mature beyond his years so even though he might be 17 he certainly doesn't play like it so I would like to see him get a start here and there but some some interesting trends to watch for over the next couple of months and just to add on your point another player that that did play that did start is uh John Herman's son 
right. Uh, as well as uh, Wright as well, who's obviously off uh, from CPL duty, uh, missed the last game, and uh, Owen Goodman from Crystal yeah. uh, Palace. Wolfburs, uh, Jesse Costa was among the scorers. Uh, he's the second youngest member in the squad, just approaching his 17th birthday. Uh, he dominated a few conversations after the game. Um, what's his uh, potential or ceiling? Yeah, someone actually asked me, I believe it was Ken MNT only actually, who tweeted at me after the after the match ended. Costa, as I touched on last week, he looks like a real good player at this stage of his very young career. He's bossing the under-19s as a 16-year-old, soon to be 17. I think next Monday is his 17th birthday. Uh, covers a ton of ground. If you look at the statistics that Wolfsburg provides after the game, he's constantly covering 10, 11, 12 kilometers a game, which I know isn't the be-all, end-all, but it kind of goes to show you just how active he is in the game and how willing he is maybe to track back and defend. Because as a midfielder, you sometimes need to do that, right? Uh, technically, a very brilliant player. And you can see, based on his Instagram post after the game, he's genuinely excited to play for Canada. And as someone who is not only uh, Portuguese eligible, but has played for a Portuguese youth team in the past, that's pretty important. And it speaks to the importance of these camps in general. Um, but also don't be surprised if Costa, based on his progress over the last few months especially, starts getting some first-team training sessions at Wolfsburg and maybe potentially cracks their preseason squad because Bundesliga clubs are known to give those younger players shots right before the season begins. Yeah, pretty much to, to, to hop in. I wouldn't have much to say on Costa specifically. Always, you know, it is exciting to see a player that young making strides through, through a club like Wolfsburg, uh, who especially in Germany, they've, they've you know, got a history of, of getting good young players up. Wolfsburg also one of the better clubs at that. And I just echo that he's the kind of players that I think in the long run of holding these sorts of U20 camps. And I think the next step is, you know, we're going to have to see if Canada's going to start holding them outside of competition years. And I think that's part of the reason that the, them making the World Cup this year was so key, that they need money so they can do things like that. I think it's going to be key so that, the you know, they're in the next cycle, you're going to find, you know, you know more cost as more guys were 16, 17, maybe on the cusp of choosing a different national team. Uh, you know, give them that chance to represent Canada and see what it's like. So in terms of Costa, yeah, it's just exciting to see someone that young. It's just going to be interesting to see, can he break through at Wolfsburg? Um, maybe he ends up, you know, taking an extra year in the academy, maybe he ends up going on loan. That's the kind of thing with these young players. It's such an interesting time in terms of there's so much that can go and happen with them right now. We'll, we'll have to see what his path ends up being. But I mean, just based on what Peter has said, there's a lot to be excited. Guys, are, are any of you um, curious at all as as to, you know, it was uh, Mauro Biello running this camp and not uh, Andrew Oliveri? Does that, you know, make you wonder what um, what that might lead, you know, heading into June, of course, leading uh, the tournament in Honduras? That is actually something I, I was asking about because I'd heard rumblings that Biello was sort of taking the reins on this one. Uh, considering he's the one who does tend to keep in contact with a lot of these players and is the one who has kind of led a lot of the recruiting efforts, I guess it's not surprising. He is also a part of the senior coaching staff. You maybe feel like him being down there keeping track of these guys is maybe beneficial, but the fact that Oliveri, who is the coach of the team, is also not leading them there in person is a bit of a strange one to say the least, especially when the under twenties are coming up. It kind of makes you wonder if maybe the roles might change before them, but who, who knows? 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good question, but I think Biello, the fact that he helmed the Olympics team as well, maybe gives an indication what Canada has planned. I think it did help a lot of the players, uh, the U23 players, that that Biello was there. I mean, the main one that I can think of off the bat is Tejon Buchanan, and there are also a, a few others that benefited from, from having Biello there. So maybe they have some sort of similar role where they want him. I'm, I'm sure he'll be down there in some capacity to, to kind of – because a lot of these U20 players, I don't think many of them will will make an impact, say, at this, this upcoming World Cup, obviously, unless, you know, miracles happen in, in, within A, the next three months to get some of the players on this this team for the tournament. And then B, in terms of, say, does Justin Smith all of a sudden, like, snap his fingers and become an everyday regular at Nice in the fall? Those things are very long shots. But uh, I think just having Biela there and, and showing that the first team is interested in a lot of these players, I think it is positive, although you do wonder... Uh, what the coaching structure is going to look like for this tournament. Oh, but, but it does make sense. I mean, he's the guy that's like tracking these guys. It's almost like a club situation where you have a sporting director making all the decisions, but the coach is the one that handles it. It is nice to have that, that, that's that same person. Uh, the next question we received is an interesting one, gentlemen, pay attention. It is from Borean's pants, our favorite listener. Uh, how close to full strength is this U20 side? Are there many, Players not at this camp that you guys consider to be among Canada's top prospects. Appreciate the content as always. Uh, now, before uh, you guys answer, um, I do have to point out this. In this camp, there is 25 players. That list will be cut down to 20 for the tournament. So they will have to make five cuts. And on top of that, uh, the press release, uh, the Canada Soccer release, uh, these are the players that were unavailable that, that Canada at least had in, in the Raider. Mm-hmm. He's in Fernandes. Kobe Franton from TFC, Thomas Giraldo, Luca Caliosho, Jaquilo Marshall Reddy, Kosi Thompson, Truth Anthony Vosant, and Rita Suhir. So obviously, with that with that in mind, um, some very talented players, some more than others. Um, but gentlemen, again, what are what are some of the players that you know could weren't on this team that, that could be cracking it uh, for the for the full tournament in June? Caliosho could be one. Jaquiel Marshall Ruddy, if TFC lets him go, I mean, if he is healthy in time, which I don't think is going to be the case, he would have probably been a pretty decent coup. The other ones I'd mentioned, which I have said on the last couple of shows now, Georgi Atanasov, who'd be one of the only players on that roster to play professional minutes over the last couple of seasons with Arda in Bulgaria is certainly one that I could see maybe cracking the list and making an impact. And then Geronimo Sabatasso of Empoli, who I think can offer a little bit more for you in the midfield creatively and in terms of orchestrating things, not in a deeper role, but maybe slightly further forward. But there are so many similar players in the player pool that if you don't call him up, it's not that big of a loss. It's just more so the fact that this is a player with decent-ish pedigree when you look at the teams he's been with, Independiente in Argentina to start with, and now Empoli in Italy. And he is eligible to play for Argentina, I believe now Italy as well, and Canada. You'd like to be able to get him in there just to get the feeling, but in terms of the actual depth, it's not a major loss not to have him. But Atanasov is someone who I could see on top of the, the players who were unavailable and were mentioned in that press release as being part of the potential U20 team. Yeah, to add to that, I mean, I'm not as well-versed, say, in the the, the European U20 market, say, as, as Peter is. So not a lot of those players, not too sure on that. In terms of the, the MLS guys, 
I think it's going to be interesting to see who's – and from the CPL guys, I'll add that who's going to be able to be released for these tournaments because I think, for example, my, the example I think right, right now is Lowell Wright with York. I'm sure they, they could have used him this this weekend uh, up front, and the fact that the tournament is, in, is going to be in the, the season is going to be interesting to see which uh, of the North American teams are going to be letting their players go to a, a tournament like this. Uh, so so for me, that's one thing to, to consider, and I, I think it also did play a role in, in some of the guys that – that maybe weren't there from North American teams this camp. A reminder that Canada faces Costa Rica again this Thursday. Let's see how the coverage is for that game. Canucks abroad run up, we go. Alfonso Davies helped Bayern defeat Armina Belfield 3 0 on Saturday with Davies picking up an assist. Uh, safe to say he's nearly back in rhythm, guys. I mean, he's starting to look like Alfonso Davies again. I mean, after that. That Villarreal first leg, you did worry a bit about the, the the scare at the end of the game, but he obviously made it through, played the weekend, and uh, didn't didn't start the the next Champions League game. We all know how that ended, but uh, yeah, I think he's he's going to get back in a rhythm, which is good. It's been unfortunate that Bayern's Champions League hopes have kind of ended the way they have, and if I'm not mistaken, they're also out of the Pokal, yeah. so it's just going to kind of be for now. There's only like a handful of games left of the Bundesliga, which based on the fact that they have nothing else to play for, they're going to walk through that. So I guess that's both good and bad because I think Alfonso Davies, it would have been nice to have those Champions League games and maybe some Pokal games just because with all the time he misses, it's all about just getting him as many reps as you can before the off season. So if anything, I do say how things have lined up. It's great for Canada. Cause I think this nearly guarantees that he'll be in the nation's league squad and be there in full capacity for the friendly and for, for that, you know, health permitting knock on wood and all that. So uh, for, for him, I think their Bayern season's already almost over with obviously the 34 uh, game campaign in the Bundesliga. So Good to see him back in a rhythm. Hopefully he can get his reps in and then uh, go full bore for hopefully what is a four-game window for Canada in June. Exactly. All he needed, I think, was to get that anticipation back and Bayern needed to settle back in with him as well because not only was he quicker to read what defenders were going to do, and yes, it was Armenia Bielefeld, so maybe a bit easier to do this than, say, against Dortmund next week, but... Byron was also quicker to play it into Davies, and that was immense as well. I have no doubt that he'll continue in the final weeks of the season on this trajectory now that Davies has, what, like 240 or so minutes under him in the last two weeks? Jonathan David went 79 minutes uh, for Lil in their 2-1 loss to Lens in the Derby on Saturday. Uh, that's just one goal in 15 games for David in 2022. More on him in the mailbag coming up. Uh, staying in Liga, Ike Ugbo started and played 82 minutes for Troyes in a 1-1 draw with Strasbourg on Sunday. Uh, they are four points clear out of the relegation playoff as it stands with six games remaining. No match for Tejan Buchanan and Club Bruges this weekend. They're back in action this Sunday against Royal Antwerp. Uh, Liam Fraser and Dice's season has come to an end. Uh, Fraser went the full 90 in a 2-1 loss to Lono. Uh, Dines finished fourth with 39 points, 10 points adrift of the promotion places. Uh, also in the mailbag, we'll discuss Fraser. Uh, Stefano Stacchio got nearly 30 minutes off the bench for Porto, who crushed Porto Menense 7-0 on Saturday as Porto closes in on the Primera Liga title. Uh, that's the second time in as many games Stacchio's got onto the pitch. But how did he look in this one? A little difficult to analyze it properly because he came on when it was 7-0 for Porto. 
but he did orchestrate the game well, hit a couple of brilliant diagonals towards the box, delivered two terrific set pieces that really should have been converted on the other end, could have been nine if not for those misses. But otherwise, pretty routine performance for what was essentially a glorified scrimmage by the time he came on. And hopefully it paves the way for, for him getting some some minutes in the, the, the final say. I think it's uh, it's going to be a huge game for, for Porto. Obviously, they're chasing the double uh, right now. So hopefully there's just it's good to see Ustakio's involvement uh, continue to, to grow, even though maybe for now it's a sub, because obviously I think in his situation, you're looking a little more for the long term. It's what's Porto going to do in the, the summer in terms of do they do they extend that loan? Do they make it permanent? Does he go back to Pacos? Because I think from what we've seen from him, I think it's clear that he can play at the portal level. It's just a question of do they want to invest in him? Uh, do they want him to, to to play in a rotational role, a starting role, et cetera, et cetera? And I think uh, him just continuing to audition will only improve his chances of hammering something more permanent out in time for the transfer window. Team Vittoria was an unused substitute for Morenz in their 2-0 victory over Tondela, which lifted them out of an automatic rele- relegation place and into the relegation playoff by a point. They are one point away from a safety. In Turkey, Atiba Hutchinson and Kyle Aaron were an unused substitute for Besiktas in a 0-0 draw with Yer Sanspor on Sunday. Uh, Sam Ube, he won his usual 90 as Hattisport drew 1-1 with Sivaspor on Saturday and was far more active compared to last week's loss. In England, gentlemen, up 3-0 in the 75th minute, Richie Correa checked into the match for Nottingham Forest, finally making his English Championship debut. Uh, I would say that's the, the news uh, that we have all been hoping for. Uh, he finally had to wait uh, and it has paid off. Uh, what did you guys make uh, of the little time uh, that he saw with his club? Better late than never, I'll first off say. I mean, it's it's miraculous it took this long. I don't know why, but uh, I think it was good just to see him on the pitch. I think it was kind of a routine involvement for him. I think it was kind of a, a no-pressure situation. You get thrown on, you're 3-0 up, you're playing a team that's down uh, a man, and it was just kind of hold possession, let's get the win, uh, you know, let's keep the promotion push going, and he did what he had to do. He made all of his passes he got forward, was a bit timid at times, but he still, you know, he tried to to, to make things happen. He had a, a failed cross, if I'm not mistaken, but all of his passes were, were completed. It just wasn't really much for, for him to do. So I'd just say for him, it's good to get on the pitch. I think some big, big games for not, uh, for, for Forrest coming ahead. I think it's, they're at 41 games now. The, the championship season is 46, so five games to go. They have some games in hand to make up and then... It's looking unlikely they'll they'll make it to Bournemouth uh, or catch up to Bournemouth and make it into the automatic playoffs or promotion spot. Sorry, so it's all about fighting for for, for through the playoffs. So hopefully this is a sign that uh, Richie Larea can get get in in the mix for that. And someone did point out that uh, due to contractual obligations, there's a chance that uh, Jed Spence might not be able to because he's on loan from Middlesbrough, and there's a chance they do play Middlesbrough. So there's a chance that he might not be able to play a big playoff game. And uh, the next man up at right wing back is very likely at least one of the main options is Larea. So there is worth that uh, that worth considering too. Exactly. This is going to be a big couple of weeks here because with Forrest having two games in hand over pretty much everybody else in the playoff places, they are in the midst right now of a seven-game stretch over 22 days. They've played two of them. And the fact that, as you mentioned their AGR, that 
you might not have Spence for one of those playoff matches, all the more reason to then give Larea some time off the bench and and get his legs a little, get them fresh, right? He could be called upon, which is good because he was probably earmarked more so for next season. Maybe this season, if Spence had gone back to Middlesbrough, which he obviously didn't, and then he ended up staying, Max Lowe locked down the left wing back spot, so that meant another slot wasn't available for him. Now maybe things are starting to work out in his favor. In the championship, it was Junior Hurley who had an assist in a wild 4-4 draw uh, between Reading and Swansea on Monday. Uh, it was his first goal involvement since mid-February. Uh, Hurley was an unused substitute in Friday's game against Sheffield United. And speaking of which, uh, Daniel Jebison had nearly 40 minutes off the bench for Sheffield in a 2-1 loss to uh, Reading on Friday. Um, nice to see, finally, him getting some minutes Theo Corbinu, uh got 15 minutes or so in MP Dons' 3-2 loss uh, to Corbinu's former loan club, Sheffield Wednesday. Dons remain level with Rotterdam uh, in second place in League One, which is final automatic promotional place. Uh, Liam Miller nearly added his account against Sion on Monday, but couldn't convert a terrific chance as Basel drew 2-2. Miller had two shots, completed two of his six dribbles and was usual active south, but couldn't get that decisive goal. Uh, in Germany, Scott Kennedy delivered another incredible performance for Jan Regensburg in a 1-1 draw with Hansa Rostock on Sunday. He logged eight clearances, two blocks, three interceptions, two tackles, and won two of his four defensive duels. In Greece, Derek Cornelius was back in at centre-back for Panathinaikos after a two-game spell at left-back as they drew at 0-0 with Asheros Tripolis on Saturday. Uh, Milan Borjan started and kept the clean sheets as usual for Western Belgrade in a 0-0 draw with arch-rivals Partizan on Saturday. And elsewhere in Serbia, Stefan Mitrovic finished the 90 for Raniki Mish in a 0-0 draw with Vos Dovac. Richie Ennen in Russia nearly scored for Nishi Novgorod uh, in a nil-nil draw with FK Kimki on Sunday. In Scotland, Scott Arfield, he was one of the heroes for Rangers in their Scottish Cup semi-final win over Celtic. Uh, he scored the equalizer after coming off the bench in the 75th minutes. He also had 15 minutes in extra time against Braga in the Europa League last Thursday. And Julian Dunn was an unused substitute for Hamcam in their 3-0 victory over Sandal Fjord on Monday. And over an MLS now to domestic matters, Mark Anthony K had 19 minutes for the Colorado Rapids in their 3-1 loss over Minnesota United. And speaking of Minnesota United, Dane Sinclair had to start for them, uh, producing another excellent performance. Uh, Master McCropoke started for AFC in their victory over Sporting Kansas this weekend. Uh, Daniel Henry was an unused substitute. Uh, but, gentlemen, back to the conversation of goalkeepers because, as we know, uh, Dane Sinclair is back into the mix, um, you know, after his amazing performances. Some people are even saying he's overpassed Cropo. Um, in the depth chart, obviously, Cropo has a lot more caps than he does in a Canada jersey. Uh, but his MLS uh, club form uh, is, without doubt, uh, very impressive. What do you guys think about the, the, the goalkeeper depth? Uh, and uh, could Dane Sinclair uh, be the number two ahead of Qatar? Well, I saw some of the takes out there in terms of, uh, you know, 
Dane Sinclair and it obviously, you know, piqued my interest. I'd been watching a bit of Dane Sinclair for, for Minnesota. <laughs> He's been excellent. He's been shining. I think his, his stats kind of spoke for himself, but I wanted to dive in a bit deeper and it's not as far fetched as, as it sounds in terms of right now, what I'll say, Dane Sinclair, if he keeps up the run that he's on, like I, the, the example I use, like Matt Turner over the last four or five years, anyone who's been an analytics darling has been screaming at the wall about Matt Turner and what he's able to do. And, you know, Matt Turner obviously made his move to Arsenal. He was dominant. I think Matt Turner, uh, in terms of the advanced goalkeeper number, he owns like the entire record book in terms of that. Right now, the way Dane Sinclair is playing statistically, he blows Matt Turner's best seasons out of the water. Like, just to give you an idea of how good Dane Sinclair is right now, like I was just looking through, he has an 85 save percentage. He saved 23 of, uh, 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 he has 23 saves. Sorry, he's only allowed three goals. Uh, his XG against him is almost seven, and he's, you know, so he's overperforming or underperforming his XG, I think, by 3.51. Uh, I have his adjusted save percentages a hair under 90%, which is just obscene for a goalkeeper. When I uh, typically over a full season, uh, a goalkeeper's normal save percentage will be at most in the 70s or eight, uh, 75 if they're having a wild season, adjusted save percentage as well. So Dane Sinclair right now is having a ridiculous season. So for for me, I think Crepo, it's going to be very hard to surpass Crepo because Crepo, I think, has still been very good with LA. I think it's a different role there. You look, you might look at some of the stats, his safe percentages are down, et cetera. He's not getting as many shots as he was for Vancouver. Before in Vancouver, it was kind of, you get a lot of shots, it's easier to make, uh, to make a lot of saves, et cetera. But all I'm saying is with Dane Sinclair and the form that he's in, if he keeps it up, and that's the big if uh, thing with Dane Sinclair right now, it's a lot of ifs, it's if he can keep this up, it's if he can keep playing over Tyler Miller, it's if he can do all that, then for me, yeah, he can at least make it a discussion, I'd say. He can. I do think, though, that stylistically they offer different things, and that's fine, right? Um, Dane St. Clair, for example, not as comfortable on the ball as Maxime Cropeau is. Fairly major staple of, of modern-day goalkeeping, maybe not so much on the national team specifically, but it's a nice weapon to have, right? And sure, when you do look at the pure save numbers, and even things like crosses claimed, I believe the only edge in terms of actual goalkeeping shot-stopping statistics that Crippo has the edge in over St. Clair this season is basically the amount of times he comes out of his area to intervene defensively. So basically a sweeper-keeper type thing. Crippo does have the advantage there over St. Clair. But what impresses me about St. Clair specifically is, I don't know what it is, when he comes out off his line, he makes himself so big and just covers off so it's much angle. Body. Like, it's it, it's wild to me how successful he is coming off the line and just cutting off the angle and the timing he has, the anticipation he has, which a lot of times you can't teach. You can teach the technique, you can't always teach the timing. Um, his reflexes are off the charts, they're very, very good. Yes, he's seeing more shots than what Crippo was seeing. And I did say when Crippo was traded to LAFC that if he just gives them average goalkeeping, like even just, you know, zero goals saved above expected, then they're going to be a contender for MLS Cup. And he's doing that so far because he's slightly above what his expected goals are in terms of goal saved above expected. But St. Clair is, I believe, according to StatsBomb, it's like plus five Post-shot expected goals plus minus right now, which is tops Ridiculous. in the league. It's crazy. Well, that's it. What's with St. Clair? Like, it's just, 
yeah, it's the stats that, that 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 really stand out with him. And I mean, we could talk about the stylistic things. I mean, he has a big body too. I think long term, uh, he projects well for 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 Canada. So I mean, I don't I don't want to diminish Crepo's achievements either. I think again, like I mentioned, it's going to take like a seismic. It's going to have to take something wild from St. Clair, maybe even a bit of dip in form from, from Crepeau to, to even make this a discussion. But it also is a discussion in terms of, do you want your most informed players playing? And if St. Clair is going to be playing like he is, it's, it's going to be not be just a question of, is he one of the best goalies in Canada? It's going to start getting so much bigger than that. Well, that's the thing. I mean, St. Clair is now being considered as one of the best goalies in, in MLS, right? Um, and with Matt Turner heading to Arsenal, uh, that discussion could even become bigger. Um, but in terms of goalkeeper, I mean, you have uh, Thomas Asal and you have Sebastian Bressa playing regularly as well. It could be a very interesting conversation by the time 2026 hits. Uh, if uh, Milan Boring decides to retire after uh, Qatar 2022. Uh, to wrap up the roundup, uh, Raheem Edwards uh, won the full 94 LA Galaxy uh, in a nil-nil draw with Chicago Fire. Edwards had five tackles, three interceptions, and won 11 of his 16 defensive duels. Pretty good defensive display for the usually offensive inclines fullback. Uh, Tyler Pasher got a well-deserved start for the Houston Dynamo going 59 minutes in the team's 0-0 draw with the Portland Timbers. Tesho Akinelli had 20 minutes uh, for Orlando City, who beat the Columbus Crew 2-0 on Saturday. To the Canucks Abroad mailbag, we go. Kevin Brown is asking us this. Transfer market has Jonathan David's value at $55 million. Do you think this comes down giving his recent struggles to score at Lille since January? If it comes down, shouldn't that open up more teams to bid on him? And similar question from Vanis at Vanis Jets. What's going on at Lille and how is it impacting David and his future move? I think it has to come down a little bit, but not significantly because he still has a lot of term left on his contract, which is a big indicator for this. There still is interest in him, significant interest, I might add, coming in from Inter and Arsenal primarily. We've seen all pretty much every major team in Europe linked to him, but that's what happens when you have a talented young player. Teams are going to have them on his scouting list, and therefore they're going to put him as an option A, option B, option C, wherever he happens to come in that pecking order. But it's Arsenal and Inter who would probably be the two front runners at this point. But in terms of what's going on at Lille, I mean, when you look at the, the whole Hatem Ben Arfa thing and how he criticized how the team was, was you know, playing super deep and um, weren't really playing like a quote-unquote side competing for Europe and were playing along the lines of, I don't even know what team he compared them to, but it wasn't fun. And gosh, shout out Gengar. There we go. So, you know, it's not, it's, it, that has a lot to do with it. Yes. And the fact that David sees this, he's experiencing this, he sees that he's probably going to get a move this summer. Things aren't all that great at Lille. That's going to affect your performance. Should it be a little better than what it's been? One goal in the last 15 games. Yes. He does take some fault. I have said this on the show before, but there are external factors here. That being said, I am excited to see what happens for him in the summer because I think either move, whether it's Arsenal or Inter, would be very beneficial for him. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting to to see the the whole scope of the situation with Jonathan David. I think one thing is in terms of scouting him, I think 
one thing I've already always said about Jonathan David is game is so much more than goals. And it, it always has been. He's not going to be your, your prototypical number nine. I mean, obviously, he's going to be sold as a number nine. So scoring one goal in 15 games is going to hurt his value. Yes, but I don't think it should hurt his value as much as it would, say, an out-and-out number nine whose job is to exclusively score goals week in, week out, whereas David's not so much. Uh, you know, he's not always about, you know, that part of his game, I think, in terms of like, yeah, like Peter mentioned, the contract's a huge thing. I think it's just one of those where I think if you're watching, it might you can kind of just tell that it's not really it anymore at Lille, for a lack of better way to put it. I mean, you look last year and just the magic that there was of of Galchez four four two and Barak Yilmaz and Jonathan David making magic up top, and then ever since Gouvernex next come in, it's just been you know it's they had flashes, but for the most part, it's just been static and they, they don't look the same in attack. It's poor decision-making. It's very individualistic. It's, you know, the fact that David even went on that run in the beginning of the season is a testament to, to him as a player that he, he was able to go on that sort of run. We're just kind of seeing right now the, 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 the quote unquote real uh, allele. So I think for, for, for him, I think based on all those factors, clubs who see that they'll see okay a player who who's probably ready for a move he's in a weird club situation it, it's going to be interesting i mean yeah like like peter mentions as well there's a lot of good choices for him personally i just want to go for him to go to a place where either he's going to play as a second striker just because i think it might be a big ask for example as good as it would be to be at a club like arsenal where he'll play it might be a tall ask for him to say lead the line uh there because we've seen how some of their strikers have been recently have dealt with that sort of pressure so maybe if i were going to pick between the two i'd love to see him go to an intern maybe pair up with the with the striker there be it like a lataro martinez or in Jack or whoever happens who knows maybe Lukaku will end up back there and that'd be a phenomenal oh, uh, dream pair so so <laughs> you never know so for for David that's kind of what I'm I'm looking for but I can't sit there and say his value would be too impacted by the, by everything just based on the situations uh, that, that the club is going through and and him as well Joseph Pork if you had to choose three clubs in top five leagues where Sam Adekubi could thrive in uh, who would they be and why Personally, I feel like most of the top half in Liga could use a player like him because the way fullbacks are often deployed there, they are asked to cover so much ground going up and down the touchline. I think that would suit him so, so well. He could go to Lille and actually do decently well. Like, they do need another attack-minded left back. That might be slightly high in terms of the, the reputation of team, but... I think he could do a really good job for a top half team in France, for sure. Yeah, I'm just it's, it's I'm looking at say at, at teams. I'd say I'd prefer him just based on his his style. I think what we've seen from him in recent years, how he's done in Norway and in and, and Turkey. I'd love to see him go to either a Germany or or a France, like maybe one of those leagues where it's not like say the England, where it's like more physically demanding, just because I think we looked at his, his injury history, that sort of stuff. He has played in England before, to be fair, but I just look at England and the, the physically demanding uh, style wars. I feel like he suits something like a like a France, like you mentioned, or even Germany, where I'd say he's 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 proven uh, he's grown a lot. Sorry, in in, in his technical skills in, in in recent years, I think it's it's very impressive how like he, he completes so many passes. He's tidy on the ball. He crosses the ball very crisp. I think if he goes to like a mid-table Bundesliga side, for example, where there's a lot of emphasis on those sorts of things for me, I'm not, I'm thinking more Premier League and um, 
sorry, in, in Serie A don't really suit him a whole lot. It'd be more league um, Bundesliga, and I'll even add maybe a mid-table team in, in, in La Liga as well based on, on, on how they play. I think that would kind of uh, suit him. So, like, maybe, like, yeah, mid to, to top table, maybe, like, uh, throw out names like Strasbourg in France, for example. They Under former Rennes manager Julien Stéphane, they look poised to make Europe. If they make Europe, for example, they have some extra cash to spend. Stéphane's always been a manager who likes to have aggressive fullbacks. That's just a very random fit I've thought of off the top of my head that could be very intriguing to watch. Bernard Campagna, uh, Fraser's domestic season is already over. Is it possible for him to return to MLS for a couple of months uh, on a loan? I think given that the Belgian second division is going to start earlier than usual because they're expanding to 12 teams with the addition of professional under-23 teams joining that league you're going to have even less time to go across for a possible loan and get some time in there because preseason is probably going to start early June, I would imagine, somewhere around there. And even still, he has played consistently for the last few months. I don't think Dines are going to want one of their key starters to then go on loan somewhere else and then come right back. Like, he's 24 and by all accounts, is going to start for them again next season. They're going to want him to stay there. Yeah, and I mean, there's always a strong possibility he doesn't even return to to Dines and maybe makes a move within Europe as well. I mean, obviously, it's going to be interesting to see what his uh, what happens with him because it just always felt like this Dines move. It always kind of felt like it was promotion or, or bust. And now that the promotion didn't happen, they kind of went on that rut. I do wonder what the bust side of the equation is. Is it going to be okay? We run it back. We try to get promoted next year. Given that it is a World Cup year for him, you do you do wonder if maybe he had something lined up where he can get in, into a different league or, or set up in terms of uh, finding a club just because... I do wonder for a World Cup year, you kind of allowed it now. Okay, he's playing in the second Belgium division. He's pushing for promotion. If he stays in there for another year, it might be a little harder for him to crack the Canada squad. So I do wonder if something might uh, might materialize for him just because based on how everything went down with that that transfer, it always just felt so boomer bust. Ryan Attacker, likelihood that Simon Collins stays at PSV? I think that one's very high. Just based, I don't think he's coming back to Vancouver. I think it looks sounds like that one's over. It sounds like he's he's not going to come back to the Whitecaps. So I think PSV seems to have really uh, liked him. So uh, I, I'd say I'd say pretty strong possibility. Yeah, I agree with that. And with Ruben Nistelrooy in there, um, with him getting a pretty decent run of games for the last few months and being re-identified as a false nine, and they don't have a lot of striker depth in the PSV academy at this point. That could change in the next couple of months. But the fact he has the passport and the fact he's been getting a lot of games recently would indicate that there's a pretty decent chance he sticks around for at least another season. Wsoccer.ca, I know it's been hard to get stats for Portugal, but could you touch on Chandra Davidson, who plays for Sporting and has been lighting it up recently, seems a similar but faster trajectory than Chloe Lacasse. 100% it has. And she's younger at the time... Lacasse was kind of shining through a Benfica, which makes it even more impressive. She has 14 goals in 23 games in all competitions, which is insanity for a player who, need I remind some, she came through as a midfielder. She re-identified herself, speaking of re-identification as a forward, um, but as a striker in her final season in the NCAA, moved to sporting where she continued that trajectory 
and has been banging in the goals in a pretty solid women's league in Europe. Like, it's it's not like she's going to, you know, a, a second division in, I don't even know, name a country, and she's scoring goals there, which would be fine. But she's doing this in one of the marquee leagues in Europe. So the fact she's 23, 24, I believe, somewhere around there, um, it's her first European season. She's scoring consistently. Bodes well for the future. I mean, I think it's going to be hard for, for her at this point if she hasn't gotten a call already just ahead of the W Championships, given I think this last camp, for example, would have been a great time kind of bring in a bit of an extended squad just to maybe give her a taste of what it's being like. So do, because of that, I do wonder if it, it, the timeline for her to get in the national team might be a bit harder. But I think in terms of what she's done, 100%. I mean, we kind of see it with Lacasse. She's been banging in the goals for, for Benfica. There's been calls to call her in, and she finally got called in and played, and she immediately was a difference maker for Canada. So I think if you're looking at what Lacasse brought, I think there's no reason why Davidson cannot at least be given a look to to, to come into camp and, and maybe get minutes, especially with Canada. There's so much uh, flux right now, fluctuation in terms of their 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 forward situation, trying to figure out the, who's going to score the goals uh, long term. So I'd like to see Chandra Davidson at least in the the, the mix, uh, just based on scoring. Yeah, Portuguese league, Sporting and, and Benfica, kind of the big two teams. The fact that Canada's got players on both of those teams scoring goals uh, bodes very well. Question from Ramsey: Did you guys hear that Carlo Ancelotti said he'll be supporting Canada at the World Cup? I never knew this, but his wife is from Vancouver. Ancelotti, future CanMNT head coach. I know that TSA and Ancelotti have met face-to-face. Probably just a courtesy, nothing serious, but I, I think, not, not to say that there's juice to this, but you never know. I mean, Ancelotti you know, has a house in Vancouver. He could just retire from the club game completely. Who knows? Maybe Herdman. I mean, I'm, if I'm Herdman, and, and, and a job offer comes from a championship or Premier League club after a great World Cup, why wouldn't you take it? Well, first of all, I think Herbert's sticking around the 2026 regardless of what happens. I think he's committed to the team for that long. He'd have, he'd have to get offered like a deal at like Arsenal or something like that. I Pretty feel like to leave job. if that. Yeah. <laughs> or Newcastle. Yeah, maybe then. Maybe then. But regardless, I think he's sticking around the 2026. So a few weeks ago, I tweeted – because someone had asked, oh, who could be the next Italy coach given what's happening? And I'm like, well, hear me out. Ancelotti leaves Real Madrid, takes over for the 2026 cycle for Italy. This is post-Euro 2024 because I think it'd be a bit too early for him to jump over there now. And then Herman leaves the Canada job after the 2026 cycle. Ancelotti leaves the Italy job after the 2026 cycle. He transitions to the Canada job. And then kind of slowly rolls into retirement in Vancouver with his wife out there. I could see it as to whether or not he's the right man for the job. Listen, it could help with the recruiting of dual nationals. You know he would be a flexible coach tactically. He always has been. Whether he would put in the everyday work like Herdman does. And maybe even at that point he might not have to because the structures are in place where he may not have to do as much work as a John Herdman does. That might be the one concern. But it won't matter though because CONCACAF will be... Oh, six teams will qualify from CONCACAF. It's going to just going to be like a retirement job for Ancelotti. Right, but you still have to keep track of players. Well, you right want to now, do good right? at the World Cup, exactly. too. Exactly. Like, you still have to keep track of players. You still have to keep tabs on everybody, right? Like, is he going to want to do some of that work? And like I said, maybe by then, you have more staff in place. You have more resources in place where it's not always on the coach to do that. And it may not be an issue anyways. But that's one thing you maybe look at. 
I think it's tough for me with the Ancelotti one because I think he's obviously very his his CV kind of speaks for itself in terms of where he's coached, what he's won, what he's done. More specifically, uh, I think Canada would be great to have him. I just think in their current life cycle, it's hard to imagine where he'd fit in, just based on the fact he's already a bit older. Uh, you know, it seems like he's you know, with this Real Madrid job for whatever reason, cutthroat business, man. Like he could win the double and he could be done at the end of the year. Like, and like a good double, like you could win the trouble. He could win the Champions League, La Liga. It looks like he's going to win La Liga. A very good contender in the Champions League and he could be done. I just look at the current life cycle of, of Canada. I think this would have been a fun hire maybe a few years ago if when Canada was still wanting to raise their profile. Maybe bringing in a guy like Ancelotti could have been, again, great for dual nationals, great just for the story of Canada to bring eyeballs. But based on what they've done in recent years, what Herdman has, has done in terms of raising Canada's profile on the pitch. I don't think Canada needs a hire like that. They need someone who's willing to, to, to keep up the system, be willing to, to put in the work and uh, someone like Ancelotti, I'm sure he could, if I'm sure if Canada, it's not to say he wouldn't, but I just think it's, you'd have to look more at the on-field fit and what he'd bring to a national team job. It's not as much, uh, Canada wouldn't need a reputation hire like him, say as they would want it maybe two or three or four years ago. Also, you have to see how much he wants. Financially. Uh, final question from the mailbag. Uh, it's a loaded one uh, from Connor Johnston. Are the new hires that Bonds has talked about last week going to change things in the CSA substantially? We talk about the constant failures of our FA to meet basic expectations for a national team, jerseys, lack of coverage, poor organization, poor communication, friendlies, etc. Will these hires actually change these issues for the future or is it something else that is needed? What do we need to truly function like a nation on the world's biggest stage and not a team who plays four friendlies every year against Granada and Cuba? Not anymore because of the Nations League, thankfully. <laughs> so now you're forced to play against Cuba and exactly. Granada. That's the big difference. For FIFA you know, points choose. on the line, yes. Um, don't disrespect Curacao. Unless you're playing Martinique. That's also true, forget. yes. Really, we can't know until the hires are actually made official and announced because it depends on who comes in. It sounds like it's going to be pretty promising, at least with the new head of women's football section, because Bontas does seem pretty invested in that, which is good news. But in terms of the other stuff, like he came onto the show last week, Thomas, and, and talked about a lot of this and how he is gauging certain things, how to improve all the areas of the Federation. The money coming in is going to be a big help, of course. And if some corporate sponsors come in, we saw them pick up Gatorade recently. If more come in ahead of the World Cup and after the World Cup, that just adds to their coffers. Um, I just think they, they, they just need to be better staffed. Like they're a very small Federation. I, I know a lot of... Listeners are aware of this, but they don't have a lot of employees, really. When you look at U.S. soccer and the FMF, they blow the CSA's resources and employees out of the water. It really needs to start structurally and then kind of figure its way out that way. And the way it starts is by adding to the coffers. And that's what they have done. Once it happens, and once you hire people who can maybe help budget more for certain things. You can have more staff and whatnot going to under 20 camps outside of under 20 tournament windows. You know, you can in, in invest more in certain travel things. You can bring in more scouts, more, all, all these areas can really, really help. I'm just going to come out and say that if the $15 million isn't used to improve any of these things, even just marketing, just a little bit of marketing, 
then there will be some serious question marks uh, drawn uh, in 2023 and beyond. Yeah, I mean, I think to, to, to hop in on that, to, to, to mention, I think it's also Canada right now it's going to be in they i think they just need to do some play some catch up i think it's just years of being functioning as a smaller organization having a smaller budget um you know beyond the, there was always interest in pockets maybe you know and the women's team would do well at the olympics or the men's team would maybe win a few games the interest would be you know fleeting but now that the interest is there for for both programs you know the, the is, we got back to back world cup years for both of them coming up canada's going to need to start uh, we keep talking about Canada being a soccer nation, an area where Canada needs to be a soccer nation is with the Federation. I think with this money coming in, they have a chance to beef up their staff to be like a soccer nation, to beef up, you know, aspects. I think the merchandise was a huge example of Canada underestimated. They're like, oh, well, we'll open this store. We'll, we'll sell merch. We'll, we'll you know, we'll, we'll pretend it's like Canada of 2018. And then they were just blown away by the demand for, for both the, the men's merch and the women's merch. And they kind of have maybe realized that, okay, it's not, Canada isn't really, uh, the interest in Canada isn't that of a small soccer nation. So I think it's going to be, it's just all about playing catch up from the Federation so that uh, they can match that, that interest that we're seeing in soccer and uh, the sort of stage that Canada is going on right now, just because I think years of, 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 of what they've gone through is, is going to, is caught up to them. And they're, now they're just going to have to play catch up. And that's part of the process of what they've gone through the, the, the growth uh, on the field. Now it's just time to, to, to catch up to that. Talk about the MLS because we had our first all Canadian matchup uh, this season with CF Montreal defeating the Vancouver Whitecaps 2-1 on Saturday. Vancouver nearly recovered a drop, but Toasting Ricketts was offside when he scored his late equalizer. Alex, you were there. I'm going to ask you first. Uh, thoughts on this one uh, from uh, Canadian angle? Interesting game, I think. On one hand, you saw a very strong start from CF Montreal built themselves the, what they needed and they they kind of held on. So I think it's encouraging for them just that they've got three wins on the trot. They've kind of forgotten this Champions League hangover that was hanging, you know, the the just the realities of the Champions League have, have appeared to be behind them. They're slowly getting guys back fit and healthy. They're they're figuring out what their best lineup is. There are some worries in terms of what, you know, how they're closing out games and and, you know, personnel and whatnot, but I think you have to be encouraged, you know, by little things. If we're going to talk about the Canadian perspective, Kamal Miller, Alistair Johnson are slowly finding their feet again after, uh, you know, tough starts of the year. We're seeing Joel Waterman continue to be not just a force on the Montreal backline, arguably their most consistent defender so far this year. Yeah. He continues to, to, to grow and show a lot of things as a player. I think Ismail Kone was phenomenal uh, in the game. And again, just the way he was, I mean, the Vancouver midfield didn't offer much of a resistance, but he was <laughs> gliding through and, and just playing uh, some very smooth soccer. And there was a lot to like from that perspective. On the other side, Vancouver, a lot more questions and answers right now. Injuries continue to dog them. Losing Ryan Gold early in the game does not help uh, with, with that. I mean, they continue to show great fight and they continue to play well for patches of the game, but being consistent has continued to be a problem. Slow starts, playing on the road, all those sorts of factors. Uh, I was encouraging, though, that they brought on a bunch of Canadians at the end, like Ryan Raposo, Lucas Cavallini, Michael Baldissimo, and they all looked fantastic. And that, and that was really encouraging uh, to see on that aspect, but it's still a lot to figure out. But hey, maybe that could uh, pave the way for more starts from those guys uh, going forward, because uh, right now, the more Canadians that play, the more you win if you if you ask toronto fcs we'll get to 
to add on to that point, which I find kind of intriguing, yes, the season overall for Vancouver hasn't been good, but there's been one or two interesting things that I've noticed over the last couple of weeks that I'm really intrigued to see over the next little while. Ryan Raposo at wingback has been low-key solid in terms of chance creation. It's been Schwanier-esque. Yes, thank you, actually. I made that comparison the other day to someone. He made a lot of difference in that game when he came on. Listen, Javane Brown has been terrible compared to what he was showing last season. And there were reports that he showed up to camp more unfit than they maybe would have liked him to. So maybe you drop him, give him a little bit of a chance to recoup in that way. And then you give Raposo some much-deserved starts. Because I know Vanny Sartini likes to rotate quite a bit. But sometimes when a player does show consistency, you have to reward that. And I am intrigued as to whether he maybe rolls with the three-man midfield, which is what we sort of saw after all those Canadians came on. Maybe go with Baldissimo deeper to you know get him in his preferred role. And then go... Whatever you want to do at that point, whether you want to go Vite and and Bearhalter with Galden behind a forward, provided he's healthy, then I say you go for it because that could be the way to go. I don't know what you think about that, Alex, but it's something that you know I kind of thought eh, could possibly work. That's a tough one right now with Vancouver because I think most of their problems originate in midfield at the moment, and I think with Kyle Alessandre being out for another eight weeks or whatever, six to eight weeks, I'm sure it'll be shorter than that. But with his latest setback, Russell Tybert continuing just to not, you know, he hasn't looked like the version of himself that he was last year that the Whitecaps need. I I am personally pondering if the Whitecaps might be wise to go to a back four for a few weeks until Kyle Alessandre comes back. Because the only thing with Baldissimo, I think that's the sort of game state that benefits him that when he came on and that's why he looks so good. You come on, you're holding possession because Montreal sat deep. He's excellent. I think the problem is you look at Columbus, the first game where it kind of put him in the, not the doghouse, but it kind of, threw him out of the the, the minds of everyone was because Columbus controlled the game. They had a dominant midfield, Michael Baldissimo defensively, unless he has a number six alongside him that I just don't think the white caps have. Cause that player is Daniel Bikel and he's obviously over in Serie B. Andres Kubas, maybe. Sebastian. We'll see. Maybe that's what Kubas will come in and bring. So that is a very good point. So just because of that, I do wonder Baldissimo, it just might be limited into in the sense mm-hmm. that, unless you're playing teams where you know they're going to sit back and you can control possession, that's going to be harder. But I will concede that uh, I think the Whitecaps, I think they just, they're they're starting to realize you need more in the midfield. Sometimes you'll have to figure out a balance. Like, do you go screw it and go Gald, Vite, and Berhalter in the midfield? Yes, it's a bit of a, a very attacking lineup, but every time those three have played together, the Whitecaps have been controlling play more and, that's the old adage. Sometimes you don't need to defend when you have the, the the ball. And I think right now, a lot of the white caps problems are the fact that in midfield, sometimes they, they concede a little more than they should. And it kind of leads to, to, to these errors, at least these moments that, that we're seeing in games where they just kind of get, get hit once. And then that's game over for them. Toronto C overcame a back and forth first half against the Philadelphia union and won two one as Bob Bradley's side are slowly gaining steam. I was there as a fan. What a match that was. Golasso from Pozuelo. Gentlemen, takeaways on this one as um, this might be from at least a Canadian perspective, uh, the team that is giving uh, Canadians 
the biggest opportunities. And it's about freaking time, I might add. The amount of good young players they've had and they just haven't given an opportunity to for whatever reason, it baffles me. But good on Bob Bradley for giving these kids some opportunities. Yet it's funny to me because the one player I really want to focus on, at least from this game, is a non-academy Canadian player, and that's Caden Chung, AGR's boy. He was tremendous again at right back. The ability that he has to meander through tight spaces as if he is, you know, a number eight box-to-box midfielder in the mold of a Jonathan Osorio is breathtaking to watch sometimes. And he can cut inside a little bit and act as like a pseudo midfielder in that regard. He finds these spaces that you didn't think were were possible to fit the ball into, but he can, has great vision, defensively pretty solid in the game as well. Um, And considering TFC reverted to a back four for this game, just given the unavailable players they had at the back, the fact he was able to then retransition into a back four, which I know he is used to, but regardless, um, you know, different role to what he was playing with Toronto FC kind of speaks to the still potential he has even, even in his what age 23, 24 season. Yeah. I like the, the Caden Chung shout. I think that's a great one. I think he continues to, to really impress and show why many were kind of calling for, for him to get a move like this uh, for me. Another one, uh, I mean, I'll add it's a bit of a, a boring one, but Jonathan Azorio, hopefully he's okay because he's he's been very good for, for for TFC so far to start the year. I mean, he's injuries are always the question mark with him, but he's been playing in a deeper role than usual, but he's just been, he completes so many passes. He's, he's playing as a, a box-to-box number eight. It's It's been a very, a revelation to, to, to see. So I'm time. hoping he... It, it, i mean i still personally i think the way he sees the game i i see him more of a number 10 personally but his versatility is impressive just because he can uh, he can offer you so much in different positions i just think yeah the way he sees the game and can bring people together number 10 is his role but otherwise it's just there's there's so much to 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 pick through like someone like deandre kerr making a nice bounce back off the bench uh, obviously with jade nelson inconsistency with Jade Nelson one game he's he's a world beater the next game he, he you know he's that's part of the reason of being a youngster he's going to figure that out and uh it's nice to see, you know Deandre Kerr get back in and just overall nice to see Toronto lean into Canadians because you look at the roster some of these guys they, they they've got it. it's 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 great to see them get long overdue opportunity and the fact that they're winning with it it's like what have people been saying for years like you can win with these players and shout out to Bob Bradley for, for making it all. And for putting Osorio as a number eight. That's the most important part. <laughs> and for Luca Petrasso as well. Yeah. So, uh, let's round up the MLS portion of the show. A uh, question from uh, Josh Holtzman. Hi, Peter. Huge fan of the pod and your work. I have a question uh, for the next pod. How do you rate TFC2 and Canadian youngster Adam Perlman? I believe he's a center back which is a position of need for the Kenneman team down the line. Recently called up to the TFC first team captain. Some teams when he was younger, so leadership field general type might be there. I believe he is a dual South African national as well. He is. He was born in Johannesburg, I believe it was, but then moved to Canada when he was seven and then joined TFC's academy shortly thereafter. So he signed with TFC two at the beginning of April. He's had a couple of games to start the season so far and has looked excellent in those games. And now TFC has signed him on a short-term loan from TFC2. And what I have seen from him in those two games he's had for TFC2, I do like the body of work that's there. He's incredibly quick. 
So he covers a lot of ground in recovery in transition, which is massive. He's right-footed, which is a specifically a position of need when you look at right-footed center backs to watch. Also, I do like him on the ball. He, he does have good vision. I think maybe the, the touch and the composure under pressure could use a little bit of work, but given that he's literally just moved to TFC2, I think it's going to come with time. But he is a pretty exciting player to watch here just based on what he has shown so far. And he just turned 17 on, what was it, April 5th, I think it was. So still very young, but already quite promising. CPL, it was another exciting week. Uh, because the league announced that the 2023 Vancouver CPL team will be playing indeed in Langley, BC at Willoughby Community Park. Uh, the team name and branding uh, for the team will be announced in the coming months. And we received a lot of questions. First one is from Kenaminti Armada. How do you see the CPL team in Metro Vancouver working out? Really good that they did put it in Langley, which I think everybody expected um, to target the Valley out there because... You know, I know the Abbotsford Canucks are slowly getting better in terms of attendance. The the Vancouver Giants games at the Langley Events Center are kind of hit and miss, but the team is doing better now, so you maybe see that picking up a little bit of steam. But it targets a lot of the surrounding municipalities. Like, even if you want to drive in from Surrey or you want to come in from Mission, um, Coquitlam isn't too far from Langley either. It's a little bit of a trek when there's traffic. But, you know, if, if you're looking for entertainment on a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and you don't want to go all the way into downtown and deal with that traffic, get like a $60 Uber back to, to where you, you live, it's a great spot to be at. The only real issue I guess I have with it is that I don't want them to do what York has done and kind of lean into the big market and, and try to make it a Vancouver team. I do hope they kind of target it specifically to the local area because that's what the CPL does struggle with. And I think if you can do that successfully, then I think the success will come with that. Yeah, I mean, I think looking at uh, looking at the the overall group, I think there's a lot to be excited about Langley, rapidly growing area in Metro Vancouver, lots of people close by in, in cars. I think there is still some work to be done in terms of infrastructure. I think transit is a, is still something yeah. that needs to be improved on there because that's one area that, say, Surrey would have had an advantage, whereas there's a lot more transit, there's a lot more infrastructure out there, and hopefully this is the sort of project that encourages them to step up in that regard but in terms of but i think at the same time this is i think one misconception i also did see it's like oh this is it's going to be hard for the young people crowd as in like the 18 to 23 to go out there and drink and whatnot i don't think this this kind of sort of team's marketed to them i think this towards the families because you look at that area it's a lot of families a lot of you know like the the quote-unquote the nuclear families kids you look at all the soccer clubs in the in the area and this is really about getting them involved in the game and i think pacific fc has done a great job of that and the fact that it's the same ownership group uh doing i think they're they recognize that and what worked for them in langford is really making it an afternoon game bring the kids bring the family it's a good it's more of a family uh, oriented atmosphere so i think uh, because of that i think langley's gonna gonna be a good spot for it as long as like you mentioned it, it really becomes a langley team but knowing the ownership group there with rob friend and whatnot that shouldn't be a problem right but i do wonder that if uh, six five entertainment group um, does own both Pacific and this new Langley team. Um, Manuel Veth has reported that um, 
a club from the Bundesliga was interested in, in buying this team once it got off uh, to the ground. Um, because as we know, I think that's pretty much common knowledge by now that Forge are minority owners in HFX. But it's, it's, I mean, it happened in MLS the first couple of seasons where you had uh, many, many players, sorry, many, many teams that were owned by, by multiple owners. Uh, gentlemen, uh, final two questions on this portion. Again, from Kenam Tiramata, what are your thoughts on a long-term third team in BC uh, in the Okanagan region? Also wants to know what would be a unique form of creating rivalries. Yeah, I think it's going to be, I think that's a long-term project. I think you look at some of the areas yeah, across the the country that I'm sure, you know, you, <laughs> you start and end with Quebec and then from there you go, okay, you want to maybe make some inroad in the prairies. I think it's not a rush to get a third team in, in BC, uh, but I think long-term it, it would be great. I think BC soccer culture is rapidly growing. I think hopefully a few good years maybe of League One BC just getting their feet under them and, and really tapping into that infrastructure will be good long-term for, for setting up something like that because I think BC can handle it. They just need to, to, to kind of get their, their feet wet. And I think with all the, the new clubs coming in there, they're really going to get a good job to a good chance to test run all that. To you, Peter, uh, there hasn't been a ton of news out of the Saskatchewan CPL expansion team. Uh, have you heard uh, anything uh, recently regarding that? Just that they're still waiting for the stadium to get approved. And, and that's really what it's contingent on. So we just have to stay tuned. Yes, I have heard the same thing. And let's talk about the actual the action itself uh, on the pitch. That is, it began with York United trying one one with FC Edmonton on Friday, a snowy match, I should say. Atletico Ottawa picked up a narrow one 0 victory over HFX Wanderers, uh, finishing with six points on the table. Fortune Crowley played a thrilling two two draw in the other match on Saturday, not to be outdone by Pacific defeating Valor three two on Sunday afternoon. Uh, I'll throw it to you, AGR, since uh, you are uh, now writing for campiel.ca. Any noteworthy uh, players that caught your eye this weekend? I mean, it start and starts and ends with uh, with Marco Bustos, I think, this weekend. I mean, huge performance for him against Valor, three assists. Could have scored a penalty. Could have had, he had an assist disallowed off of a Matthew Baldissimo disallowed goal. It was phenomenal to see what he, uh, you know, did obviously there. You look over at Ottawa, nice to see Malcolm Shaw grab a goal, uh, continuing their hot start over over Halifax. Uh, you look at Edmonton versus York. Jose Di Rosario, Di Ros- a D-Rose scoring goals for a Toronto-based team. It did feel right to, to see uh, him bag his first goal. Otherwise, Masta Cashier always, has his, he's, he's quietly done, a, you know, a lot of good things over with Valor and now over, obviously, at Edmonton over the last few years. He also scored in that game and then, uh, so many places to go. And then on top of that, you got Nate Ingham, a fantastic game over for Ottawa in goal, made five saves, kept a clean sheet. And I just want to shout out Jonathan Sirwa for saving another penalty over at Valor. He's also continued to be fantastic. And I think will be fun to see what he can do if we're talking goalkeeper names in the 2026 pool for, for Canada. Peter, uh, the amount of yellow and red cards that have been handed out this early in the season is very, very high. Uh, concerns at all regarding, you know, player availability and whatnot? Well, it's, what, four red cards so far to start the season, which is absurd. A lot of bookings for sure. I think it's it's down to a few things. Number one, the quality of officiating has never been that great. 
Um, I think the fact that the league is now starting again in home markets and the players are, you know, still kind of getting back into that rhythm. I think that has a little bit to do with it as well. They're a little bit overzealous. They're antsy. Um, but I think also a lot of times it's about game management too from the referees. You know, if you keep your cards in your pocket a little bit longer, I think it could actually have a lot of effects. So I, I think it's a mixture of everything. But it's definitely peculiar to see four red cards in the first two weeks of the season. AJR from David Anthony, uh, best player in CPL or best Canadian in CPL, most likely uh, to move out. Oh boy, loaded question, huh? But uh, I mean, just off the top of my head, I'll definitely forget players, which uh, if I do, I've seen no slight to them. There's just so many. I mean, for me, some of the main ones, I look at Pacific, Marco Bustos, pretty easy place to start. The level he's playing at, he looks more than ready to make a move up. I think also Manny Aparicio continues to be massively uh, underrated over there. Uh, you, you look elsewhere or even on that team as well, throwing at Amir Didich as well. He continues to be a very, very good signing uh, for them. You look some other names across the league off the top of my head, like Jonathan Sirwagin, I just mentioned. Uh, Karifa Yao over uh, at Cavalry continues to, I think Montreal has a very good one in him long-term at the the central uh, center back position. You know, you look at some of those those players. There's a few. You look also, again, Max Ferrari, Diadine Abzi over at York, that duo. Uh, there's a lot of kind of Canadians. I think it's guys who've been in the league two, three years because they've, they've, they've now adjusted. They know what the leagues are capable of. This is really some of them, their chance to shine and really blow it apart and prove, okay, it's no fluke. I've been doing this for a while. You've seen what guys like Caden Chung and Lucas McNaughton and Joel Waterman have done moving up a level. There's no reason why guys, like I mentioned, and many more can't start make that jump up. So I think right now looking at the CPL uh, in terms of that, I think it, with this being a first full, uh, you know, first full season in a while because the pandemic, the regular schedule, the, the quality of players, uh, I would be surprised if there aren't a, a fair amount of, of transfers in this offseason from players to go to a big level just based on uh, some how some of these players are playing and what we're seeing from guys who have made that step up. Question over you, Peter. Any award on the CPL negotiations with PFA can uh, off to the idea, any idea when the CPL will get a new commissioner? This is from Dan Clark. I think the fact that the commissioner hasn't been put in place yet, I think, is delaying that. I know they were starting preliminary talks when Klanikin was still there. I think that's what this is dependent on. But still no update regarding the commissioner which is a little bit concerning because <laughs> the longer the league goes without someone permanent in place, I, I think the more questions start to arise. Final two questions. Uh, first one is from Supremate Montrelice. Uh, why in the world is CPL not talked about in French or one soccer do anything in French? 99% of people who like soccer uh, I talk to here in Quebec laugh when I tell them there's a new league called the CPL and don't know anything about it. And similar question from Mark Abajo. Uh, a new expansion franchise was announced in the CPL and it wasn't in Quebec. As far as I can tell, there is no French language coverage of the league. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, there are 7.5 million Canadians who primarily speak French. Why is the CPL not trying to market to them? I think the fact that they don't do more French language coverage. I know that there's been the odd article here and there, um, but... Plus commentary too, which, which is a big step, of course, as well. Just because there isn't a Quebec club in the league doesn't mean there shouldn't be French language coverage. It's an official language 
of this country. It's a national Canadian league. So therefore, there should be no excuse not to have more French language coverage. And listen, maybe with the additions of the likes of Alexander Gonguet-Ruzik, of Patrice Bernier, of Matt Cullen, who is a bilingual speaker, that can help drive some more French language coverage. You hope so. And let's hope it does happen uh, now that these uh, decisions are being made. Maybe AGR can provide coverage in, in both languages coming soon. Let's wrap up the show with the news and notes. Uh, not a very busy week in terms of news cycle. Uh, Alejandro Pozuelo, Chris Mavinga, and Coach Bob Bradley top your week seven MLS team of the week. Uh, for Montreal, Georgi Mihailovic was also included in the MLS team of the week. Fourth UFC science game defender Daniel Stum- Stampatori to a Canadian CPL development contract. FC Edmonton signed Simon Trentafilo on loan from Pacific FC. And finally, Atiba Hutchinson joined League One Ontario side Simcoe County Rovers as a co-owner. Yes, and that is going to do it for us this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We will be back with you the same time, same place, or thereabouts next week. <laughs>